The Gospel reading comes from Luke, chapter 1, verse 5 to 25 at this point, and then later, chapters 57 to 80. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as a priest before God, his section was on duty. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people were praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably upon me and took away the disgrace I've endured among my people. The second reading continues from the first chapter of Luke and it's verses 57 to 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown this great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zachariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, 
His name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably upon his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that he would be saved, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abram to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Here endeth the reading. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So said the bard in Romeo and Juliet. I don't know if it's in the Anne's Juliet that's on at the theatre over the road. I haven't been to see it yet. That, that gets in there, does it, Helen? Is it worth seeing? Yes. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. We have to go and see it. Anyway, here's my question. <clears throat> Why all this fuss about whether John the Baptist should be called John or... Zechariah, like his father. As the star-crossed lovers of Shakespeare's play eventually discovered to their tragic cost, quite a lot, in fact, hangs on a name. And, you know, this is true for us today, still, of course. For example, I find it quite hard to think of myself as anything other than a Simon. And my middle name, Patrick, is important to me because it reminds me of my grandfather, who I loved very much. Whilst my surname roots me firmly within the tradition of my family, I am a woodman, for better or for worse. We have a tradition, of course, of people changing their name to reflect some change in their circumstance or identity. So most common is when two people get married and one of them takes the other person's surname as a symbol of their new unity as a couple. Traditionally, it has been the wife taking the husband's name, but not always. As the uh, marriage of one of our church members this last year demonstrated when he took his wife's surname instead. Sometimes people choose to get married and not take surnames. And of course, when my colleague Dawn 
married her husband, they decided to combine their surnames and go double-barreled. It does occur to me that if you just keep that tradition going on forever, you end up with very long surnames. So maybe some compromise has to be had somewhere. But, you know, whilst surname changing is fairly common, sometimes we meet people who've changed their first names. <clears throat> These days, the only people allowed to call my wife by the long version of her name are her dad and her aunt. She's not here this morning. She's not very well. Uh, so I dare you... No, don't. Better not. You'll get into all sorts of trouble. To the rest of us, she is very firmly Liz. Some people change their first name not so much out of preference, as Liz did. You know, so I don't know at what age Elizabeth morphed into Liz, but I understand it was in, you know, somewhere in her primary school years. Some people change their first name as a marker of a change of identity. We had one friend do this a few years back when she got divorced, and she asked people to start using her middle name, which was actually the name she'd been known, at, known by as a child, but when they'd married, her husband had preferred her first name, and so she'd used her first name, so we got to know her as one name, and then when the divorce came through, she said, oh, by the way, could you start calling me another name, please? And it took a bit of getting used to, if I'm honest, but we, we all got there eventually and we understood the reasons why she'd asked us to do that. Here at Bloomsbury, we've had a couple of name change services for people who want to mark their transition of gender identity before God. And in these last couple of examples, I think we're getting closer to the long biblical tradition of name changing as a marker of identity. So... Abram became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel, Simon became Peter, Saul became Paul, and Zach Jr. became John, a.k.a. the Baptist. So what's going on here? After all, Luke's gospel devotes considerable wordage to telling us the drama surrounding the naming of Zechariah and Elizabeth's untimely born son. It's quite clear that there is a strong expectation in the community and extended family around them that this boy is going to be named after his father. And the inference from this is that he will follow in the family firm, so to speak becoming a priest, taking his turn in the temple in due course, offering incense on the altar like generations of men in his family had done before him. And the name Zechariah would have suited this career path well. It means in Hebrew, God remembered. And the task of the priests was precisely this, to keep the memory of God alive and to keep the people of Israel alive within God's memory. They were the guardians of the rituals, the maintainers of the faith. And they had kept the faith faithfully down the centuries of difficulty, from invasion to exile, occupation to subjection, through the times of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans, the priests had reminded the people that God had not forgotten them. 
priests called Zechariah, God remembers, firmly in that tradition. From father to son, generation after generation, the priests had kept the rumor of God alive. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth had impeccable priestly credentials. They were both from priestly families. Elizabeth's even more prestigious than Zechariah's. He was a descendant of Abijah, one of the priestly families instituted by King David. Whereas Elizabeth, we are told, could trace her ancestry right back to the time of Moses as a descendant of his brother Aaron, the original priest. She even had the same name as Aaron's wife, for goodness sakes. You can just imagine that when Zechariah and Elizabeth had got together and decided to get married, they would have seemed like the perfect priestly couple. Any son of theirs would have been on the fast track to priestly superstardom. So you can also imagine the pain as the years ticked by with no children and most particularly no son. You can imagine how they would have felt. The inability to have children when you long for them is always painful. And even in our time, there are many people who have to live with the sadness of unfulfilled hopes for children and grandchildren. But for Zechariah and Elizabeth, there was another layer to their disappointment. It wasn't just their personal hopes and dreams that were vested in their hope for a child. It was the hopes and dreams of their whole family, their whole priestly community. And then, Zechariah had his miraculous moment in the temple with the angel Gabriel, who, let's face it, was kind of working overtime that year, what with appearances to Mary once, Joseph three times, check it out, plus the wise men and the shepherds. So when the supernaturally dumbstruck Zechariah and Elizabeth finally conceived, anybody else wonder why it is that when Zechariah finally has to keep his mouth shut for a bit, a baby comes? Anyway, it must have seemed as if God had truly remembered this couple, just as Zechariah's name had said that God would. So God had remembered Zechariah, and Elizabeth, and the pressure was on to name the child after his father, Zechariah. God has remembered. And the expectation here was that Zechariah Jr. would fulfill the priestly calling of his ancestry by taking his place in administering the rituals and practices of the Jewish religion, keeping the faith alive for another generation. If ever there was a child born to be a priest, it was Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. As the angel had said, he was a child born to give them joy and gladness and to bring rejoicing to many. This is the community's child. I've been reflecting on uh, Nova and Ember. They are Dawn and Simon's children. But in another sense, they're also going to be children that we're going to take promises to love and support. They're going to play their role within our community because we all love them and we all have a vested interest in them. It was the same for Zechariah and Elizabeth's kid. He was born into a religious community. But it begins to emerge. God has other plans 
about what is going to happen next. It seems that there is a different vocation in mind for Zechariah and Elizabeth's son than what everybody else thought and hoped. And the argument over his name is at the heart of this. The angel had already told Zechariah that the baby was to be named John, and he's clearly already told Elizabeth, maybe writing it down or hand signals or something, because when the neighbors and relatives turn up to name the baby Zechariah, she intervenes. But the nature of patriarchy is such that it's only when Zechariah himself confirms her words with a writing tablet that they finally relent. And so instead of a priest, we have a baby born to be a prophet. John, in Hebrew, means God is gracious. And giving this name to their child was a symbol that this baby's life was destined to mark a turning point between a God who remembers and a God whose grace starts to take shape in human history. The grace of God, you see, is always active. It's not just remembering, it's doing. And so naming their child John marks a move from priesthood to prophecy, from ritual to action. Faith will no longer be based upon the remembrance of what God has done in times gone by and upon a hope that God still remembers his people. Faith, the way that John was going to live and proclaim it, would be based upon what God is doing by his grace in the present. Now, of course, this wasn't the first time that God had intervened within the story of salvation history. The author of Luke is very well aware that he's structuring the Zechariah Elizabeth baby John story on the story of Abraham and Sarah, as we find it in the Hebrew Torah in the book of Genesis. And the similarities are striking, aren't they? There's an emphasis on name-changing. There's an elderly couple past childbearing age being told miraculously after an encounter with an angel that they're going to have a baby and then going on and having the baby. There's an element of disbelief at the angel's words. It was Sarah in the Abraham-Sarah story. It's Zechariah here. But th those elements are all in there. Clearly, our story this morning about Zechariah and Elizabeth and the baby John is echoing the story of Abraham and Sarah. And this is because the Gospel author Luke wants us, his readers, to realize that what takes place in the birth of John needs to be understood within the larger and longer story of God's faithfulness to God's faithful people. Yes, John will be the prophet of the new relationship between God and humanity that is coming into being in Jesus. But John does this in continuity with and in fulfillment of the ancient covenant between God and Abraham, that God would be Abraham's God and that Abraham's descendants would be God's people. There is no mandate here for any kind of supersessionist theology where Christianity replaces Judaism within God's promises. Rather, God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham's descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed is seen to be fulfilled in God's gracious action 
in sending John, who calls and proclaims God's son, Jesus, and Zechariah and Elizabeth's child, is to be the prophetic herald of these glad tidings of comfort and joy. And so the baby is named John, and he doesn't grow up to be a priest. And here Luke leaves his destiny hanging. After all, Jesus hasn't been born yet. He just tells us that all who heard this news said, what then will this child become? And the answer to that question is another chapter. And we'll leave the rest of the story of John the Baptist for another time. But something interesting happens in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth at this point. Luke tells us that Zechariah the priest is filled with the Holy Spirit and, get this, spoke this prophecy. And then we get the song of Zechariah, as it's known. And Zechariah himself moves from being a priest to a prophet. He changes from being one who keeps the rumor of God alive through ritual and observance to one who is proclaiming what God is doing in his here and now. God is active again. And Zechariah's restored voice lifts up in song to sing of how God has not forgotten his people, how God has remembered them through the years of difficulty, of how God is now acting in the present to bring new life into the world of darkness. And it's no coincidence that we have this reading today on the 22nd of December, which this year is the autumnal equinox. You may not notice it, but tomorrow will be a slightly brighter day than today. The light is coming back into the world. The winter is ending, slowly, imperceptibly, and with many cold days still to come, before we get to spring and summer. But the season is changing. So this is what Zechariah proclaims. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And there are a few key things that I think we can take from this. Firstly, there is an assurance that God has not finished with humanity. However bleak it may seem, God is still at work by the power of the Spirit, stirring faithful hearts to generosity, godly minds towards renewal, and devout souls towards love. There is plenty in this world to feel bleak about. And sometimes it can seem as if the nights just get longer and longer as the light goes out of the world, and sometimes it feels even from our lives. From those who live with depression, to those who feel betrayed by society, to those who long for peace and security but find none, the darkness can seem overwhelming. And yet God has not finished with humanity. God has not finished with you. God has not finished with me. This is the grace of God. Sometimes it may be that all we can do is go through the motions, as Zechariah did in the temple, year after year, desperately hoping that God had remembered, trying along the way to keep the rumor of God alive for ourselves and those we love. 
But Zechariah discovered and proclaimed that God has not yet finished that which has been started. And so he proclaimed hope of new light into the heart of the darkness of this world. And this brings me to the second thing I think we can take from this story, which is that God calls us to move from priesthood to prophecy. One of the tendencies before those of us who hang around churches is that we can end up confusing the shape our faith takes from the beating heart of divine love that called our faith into being in the first place. Now, there's nothing wrong with religious observance, with patterns of prayer and rituals of worship. They are important, they may even be necessary, but they are not God. This is what Zechariah had to discover from the mouth of the angel Gabriel, that God comes to the world not in response to what we do for God, but as an act of grace breaking in upon us from beyond ourselves. If God is merely an extension of our acts of faith, then God is a product of human hands. And frankly, there are enough idols in the world already vying for our attention without us making another one. Rather, God calls those of us who worship faithfully to take a step of faith and become prophets who proclaim in our time what God is graciously doing in our world because God is always doing something new. From the intentional welcoming of those who have been historically marginalised to works of justice and mercy to peacemaking and reconciliation to forgiveness and the restoration of broken relationships in all these and so much more God is at work in the lives and hearts of faithful people, bringing transformation to the world. And so thirdly, maybe our job is to call out and name the presence of God, to join our efforts and lives with what God is doing. This was John's calling. Just as it was Zechariah and Elizabeth's calling by the end of the story, each playing their faithful part in preparing the way for the God who comes to the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit, embodied in the life of Jesus, speaking words of salvation and forgiveness of sins. So if today the world feels like a dark day, the daylight is short, there is a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord who comes to us again and again and again. So let us pray. Adventurous God, we marvel at the ways in which you come to us through the courage of the prophets, through the faithfulness of the priests, through the openness of women and men to new life, through vulnerability and fragility, through water, bread and wine. 
And so we pray for a world that is ever needful of your coming. We pray for those who have no voice, for those who pass silently through our world, ignored and sidelined, marginalised and dispossessed. We think of those in our society who are homeless, of those who live with disability, of those who are refugees and cannot speak English. And we give thanks for those who can speak out, for those who advocate, and for those who seek to empower others. We pray especially for the two Syrian sisters who will be coming to the West End to live in January. We thank you and pray for the group that will be welcoming them from this church and others, helping them learn English and access services. We pray for those who have no voice. We pray also for those who struggle with faith, for whom doubt is crippling, who long to see you but just can't find you. We offer our thanks for the rituals of faith that keep the rumour of your coming alive. May those who seek find, and may those who are lost be found. We pray for those who struggle with faith. We pray also for all new parents, as through each fragile new life made in your image, you commit yourself once again to this world. We thank you for the examples of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Mary and Joseph, and Abraham and Sarah. We give thanks for the safe birth of Nova and Ember. Be with those who long for children but cannot conceive, and with those whose children are unplanned, and with those children who are fighting for life. In the midst of the complexities of our lives, come to us afresh to spark hope, joy and life. We pray for all new parents. And finally, we pray for ourselves. And we open our own lives to your coming as you reshape us and remake us and forgive us and renew us. May we know you deeply and have the courage to speak, the faith to persevere, the vulnerability to risk, and the hope to seek after your coming. All these prayers we offer through our Saviour Jesus Christ, God made flesh. Amen. <laughs>